invite you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Peter, almost at the end of the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 4, as we look into God's Word for just a few moments before we come to the Lord's table. It's page 1016 in these Bibles in the pews. studying through 1 Peter, and we come now to chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, you have told us we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we pray you to nourish our souls. We have hungry souls, and we have tried to satisfy them with other things that, that do not satisfy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The year is 68 A.D. It's a Saturday night in Asia Minor, that to whom he was writing, modern-day Turkey. It's the first day of spring, and there's a festival. And all your friends are going up to the temple to drink themselves drunk at the festival of Dionysius, the god of the grape harvest, the god of winemaking and wine and fertility and religious ecstasy. And your friends in their state of drunkenness... After that, we'll find a temple prostitute. They will spend the night with her. Awakening the next morning in a pool of dried vomit, unable to remember the previous evening or to find their clothes and money. Someone said they are the original frat boys in a toga party to end all toga parties. And all the men of the city are bringing their wives for the wife-swapping orgy, except the few troublemaking women who refuse to honor the God by participating. And there you are. Just three months ago, you were baptized. And now you're being invited and ridiculed and teased and mocked and slandered as you steadfastly maintain your allegiance to the one and only true God. So you not only decline the invitation of your friends, you let them know that you believe their drunken orgy is wicked and that such things will bring on them the judgment of the one true God, and that your baptism represents your passage through that judgment, you say. You say you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ and call now to a higher standard, and the only religious wine you'll be drinking is tomorrow morning in the Lord's Supper while they are sleeping off their hangovers. They go away, but they're grumbling among themselves. They are plotting to hand you over to the civil government, as an atheist, 
It's oddly because you don't believe in their gods. Your views are clearly troublesome to them and to society and must be suppressed. And they think perhaps if they turn informer, they will be awarded a portion of your confiscated property, or maybe they'll just confiscate it themselves. You certainly don't have the political clout to bring the case to trial, and even if you can, the judge will be sympathetic to their views because you are seditious. They will tell him how your cannibalistic, blood-drinking, flesh-eating rituals and this idea of calling other believers brothers and sisters, these notions of incest, you're intimidated and you feel alone. The power of God seems far off while the power of the Roman government is breathing down your neck. Will Christ really return in judgment? Your friends laugh at the thought. Look at the Christians who've already died. It's too late for them, and soon it will be too late for you, they all say. This is the real plight of the people to whom Peter was writing. He's urging them to continue to be faithful to Christ. And he promises in this letter that they will suffer. And they will suffer the judgment of all people. And they will, though, look ahead to the resurrection of the dead. And now, almost 2,000 years later, it's kind of fascinating to sit back and think about. These very people to whom he wrote are in heaven with Christ. And they form that vast cloud of witnesses bearing testimony to the truth of God's word. They have put their trust in him and have not been put to shame. And they must wait only a little while longer for the final vindication, which will be the resurrection of their bodies. And they have waited until this message comes to you and to me as well. And as Peter testified to them... So here in the scriptures, Peter testifies to us that God is faithful. Several years ago, the leaders, officers in our church, we really examined what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? We talk and have taught for years that the goal of our church, of course, is to glorify God. But more specifically, we said we want to make disciples in Macon to reach the world for Christ. We want people to become Christ followers here who have a view of the world and the unreached peoples of the world. And so we talked about what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? The word disciple means follower, but we chose three key marks of a disciple. First, that a disciple is one who is exercising the means of grace in his or her own life. They're exercising the means that God has given to us to cause us to grow. Prayer, God's word, worship, rightly partaking of the sacraments, obedience, that they know about these things and are disciplined and self-controlled enough that they have become part of your life. You're self-motivated to do that. That's a sign of a disciple. Secondly, a disciple is one who is equipped and engaged in ministering to others. And third, and this is what I want us to look at now, as a result of those, a disciple is one who is experiencing life transformation. Now, that's the key one. As a result of exercising the means of grace in our own lives, as a result of being equipped and engaged in ministering to others, we ourselves are experiencing life transformation. If you are not experiencing life transformation, you will have no zeal for Christ. And you certainly won't talk to anybody else about him because you will think it really doesn't matter. It's not affecting my life. So let's talk this morning, in preparation of coming to the Lord's Supper, of how... 
life transformation happens and the results of that according to this passage. First off, in verse 1, we see that true life transformation is rooted in the work of Christ. It's one of those odd places in the New Testament that shows they probably should not have put a chapter break here centuries after it was written because it begins with therefore. Since therefore, therefore always points back to what has been said before. So it's referring to what came in the previous chapter. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Well, he's looking back to verse 18. If you go up to the previous paragraph, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The word suffered there is that one-time event of Christ being crucified, being put to death. That was a once-for-all, one-time, never-to-be-repeated event where Christ took upon himself the sins of his people, where he was punished. God poured out his wrath upon him. He died in my place. Now I don't have to repay for those sins. Christ's payment was full, final, free, and he said it's finished. Now all transformation in our lives begins there. It's rooted in the death of Christ in the payment that Christ paid. First, you must understand and believe that before there's any transformation of life. Now, that being accomplished, we're to do something, he says in verse 1. Therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. We are to arm, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. It's the idea of a soldier putting on armor, taking up weapons. You and I must take up arms, you might say, to prepare for spiritual battle, and you need the best armor that you can get. For the danger is real. We know from other places in the New Testament, like in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul talked in great detail about spiritual armor. We're to put on the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit and have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He gets very specific about you might say, the pieces of this armor. But Peter, dealing with the same thing, what does he tell us to arm ourselves with? He doesn't go into the other details like Paul did, like sword and helmet and, and breastplate and shield and so forth. What does he say? Arm yourself with the mind of Christ, with the way of thinking of Christ. The way you arm yourself, according to Peter here, for spiritual warfare is in your thinking to develop the mind of Christ, to think Christ's thoughts after him. Now that's how we are armed for spiritual battle. Only by immersing yourself in his word can you become a person who's developing the mind of Christ. Studying the scriptures is the way by which we learn the mind of Christ because the scriptures reveal Christ. Now, those who know these things deep theologians and church historians tell us that we are living in the most anti-intellectual period in the history of the church. I suppose that is correct. The application of the mind in searching and trying to understand the things of God basically is dismissed in some places and it's mocked at in others. I regret something a man that I greatly did and do now respect told me when Barbara and I, a uh, first guest we ever had into our house to eat after we were married. And we were living in South Florida and a, 
a man came to do a seminar at the church where we were, and we said, let's invite him to come dinner, uh, eat dinner. And at dinner, I was thinking about whether to go on to graduate school, seminary, and so forth. And I asked him, what did he think about that? And, and he was trying to be funny, but there was a serious tone. He said, seminary education, I'm still trying to get over mine. But that was reflective. That was reflective of the time in which we live, that it's, it's in the church often it's an anti-intellectual environment. And we have substituted thinking with feeling. We don't discuss and, and, and work out and try and understand theological things. It's more how do you feel about it. We're called to think. And we're to act upon that thinking. It's not just thinking as an end in itself. We're to seek to understand the Word of God, to have the mind of Christ. And there's no other way to get the mind of Christ. R.C. Sproul, I, I told you one of the books I'm using in these sermons is his uh, commentary on First Peter. But I'm going to quote something from it now. He said, I once had a student who was fond of practicing what she called lucky dipping. This has nothing to do with tobacco, Okay. She would close her eyes and place her finger on a line of text in the Bible, and whatever the text said, she assumed her answer was from God. Her method required no study, no preparation, no thought whatsoever. Her great passion was to find a husband. So she applied her method to try to determine whether God was going to provide her with a spouse. And the text she got was from Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and riding on a donkey, which she took to mean that Prince Charming was on his way. I tried gently to disavow her of this practice and explain that she ought not to get her hopes up for this imminent encounter with Prince Charming. She stuck to her guns, and two weeks later, she met the fellow that she married. Nevertheless, that is not how we get the mind of Christ. We have to search the scriptures, and this is a serious matter. We simply cannot find the mind of Christ in 15 minutes a day. We must immerse ourselves in the Word of God if we really want to progress in this battle. Well, let's see specifically the difference it makes now in verses 2 and 3 of this transformation. He says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Okay, as a result of this relationship now with the risen Christ, we no longer spend our days overcome by desires we once had. Rather, it says now, we live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Here's the main contrast given between a believer and an unbeliever, also called here a Gentile or a pagan. The difference, the key difference is regarding the will of God. One seeks to follow the will of God, and the other could care less. But you cannot do both. No one can serve two masters. That's not the same thing as religion. In religion, religion says, I obey, therefore I am loved. But the gospel is, I am loved, therefore I obey. Now, a religious person chooses the first. But a believer, a genuine Christ follower, is the second. So we have to ask, and Peter's asking, do I seek to live for the will of God or just for my own? Is your chief concern to do his will or is your chief concern to have your own way? 
Now, this is reflected in some of the patterns here, the behavior uh, that he says are the old practices. He says we've spent enough time doing this, and he, he mentions sensuality. Refers to actions that, that are shocking, passions. That's not just sexual promiscuity. It can include sinful desires of any kind. Lust for revenge, lust for money, lust for the opposite or for the same sex. Drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. The, the idolater can be a very religious person because in our, our understanding, and John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory, an idol is anything in your life or my life that we use to displace the, what God should be doing. He's to be the king, uh, the ruler, the source of strength, the source of security in your life and in my life. And so when I shift that to another person or to a thing, and now my, uh, even ministry, my ministry gives me a sense of significance, or, uh, or, or my marriage is where I find my meaning, as I shift these things from they should be rooted in God to other things, these things become idols. But we may not bow down to them or have little shrines like in India for these things, but they're idols nonetheless. I was reading this by Madonna, though somewhat past her prime as a pop legend, but very fascinating. She described the seduction of success in her own words. These are her words. She said, I have an iron will, no surprise there, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody... I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. We can all probably relate on some level with those rather honest words. I've told you when I first heard the gospel as a teenager, I looked at my life, and it was like a spaghetti bowl, which my wife tells me is a colander, and it's this bowl with holes in it. And I was putting these things, some of those listed here in Peter's list, in this bowl thinking that will fill it up. And it always just ran out. And so after putting something else in, it was all gone. It was like pouring liquid through one of those. I have a close friend named James. He's, he's on the pastoral staff at the Church of the Apostles in Atlanta. And we grew up together, though he ran in a completely different circle. He was four years older. And his conversion in college uh, from being the main... If you had thought of party at, at the University of Alabama, they would have put his picture on the front of it. And he's radically converted his junior year, radically. Uh, I've never seen a life change so quickly, so fast, as a 180. And about a year later, I was, we were talking a lot, and he told me he went with one of his fraternity brothers and that guy's father... He took them, the father took them to on a trip to Las Vegas. And when he got back, we said, well, James, what did you think of Las Vegas? And James, by that time, had become a semi-theologian and very philosophical. He said, you know what? They're doing the exact same stuff we're doing right here in the fraternity house. They're just doing it with more money and more style. That's what Peter's describing here. He said that uh, it, it's, he calls it wasteful. Well, let me, let me go on. In verse 4. 
How does the world react to this transformation? They, they're surprised. They can't understand it. What's happened? It's beyond their ability to understand. When you have unbelieving friends voice their surprise at what's happening and you say, don't they understand? No, they don't understand. And they cannot understand. And they think it's strange. They think it's strange. They don't think it's strange that when people wreck their lives with destructive lifestyles or when people wreck their bodies with substance abuse or when they destroy their families with adultery. That's not strange. But if God changes your life and you no longer pursue these things, now that's strange. The Living Bible, which I never quote, but I love this paraphrase that Kenneth Taylor did right in this one, of this verse said, Of course your former friends will be very surprised when you don't eagerly join them anymore in the wicked things they do, and they will laugh at you in contempt and scorn. Have you experienced that? If you're walking with Christ, you have experienced that. We all have to some extent from friends, sometimes even from family members. When the Apostle Paul gave his defense before the Roman governor Festus in Acts chapter 26, Festus says, Paul, you are out of your mind. When he was listening to him, he said, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But it won't stop there. They will not only be surprised, it says they will malign you. Some translations are they will heap abuse or insults on you. If you live for Christ, if there's this transformation, you will stand out in the neighborhood, in the dormitory, on a sports team, at the office party, at the New Year's Eve party, at the wedding reception. Remember, you've been transformed. And they will think, what in the world happened? What happened to her? She was so normal, now she's a religious fanatic. Overnight. Verse 4 they said their surprise is when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Debauchery here just means wastefulness. They're in this toxic soup of waste and filth saying, come on in, the water's fine. And you say, I'm not, I've been in there and I got out and I'm not planning to jump back in. This is real life. This is where fulfillment is. This is what life is all about. And Peter says, no, it's wasteful. And about them, Peter goes on and says, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, verse 6, The gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. When he says preach to the dead, he's not talking about the previous reference we saw last week about Jesus preaching to the spirit and so forth. He's talking about how Jesus and Paul and himself had preached the gospel, and many of those who had heard it had now died. It was preached to those who now are dead. So their battle was over. Their victory was won. I don't know about you, but when I see the news of, a, of an unexpected death of someone that's rather young, I immediately want to know what happened. Why did that person die? Was it an automobile accident? Was there some crime was there a heart attack what what happened and so we're we're kind of if you're like me you're kind of curious about that but from a biblical standpoint there are only two conditions there are only two conditions in which someone dies in the faith or out of the faith we die in faith or we die in sin that's it and that's what peter is saying peter understood the urgency of the gospel 
So he called people to think about the time of accountability when they would stand before Christ, as all of us will. Have you thought about this? Every one of us here will stand before Christ. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We don't know exactly when it will happen, but it will happen. Are you prepared? Have you put your trust in him? You and I are judged by people every day. We're judged by how we look. We're judged by how we talk. We're judged by how we, how we behave. And we're judged for whether we participate in things we think are right or wrong. That's what he's dealing with. But ultimately, what they judge in this world is of no consequence. It doesn't matter. But it does matter that one of eternal consequence. And Peter's saying that's who we should be concerned about. That believer, that's who you should be concerned about. Unbelievers should be concerned about that. I'm out of time, but let me read you one last thing. We know from history that most, all but one of the early disciples of Christ were martyred. Peter, who wrote this, was crucified upside down. Simon Andrew, his brother, was crucified and buried in Greece. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded by Herod. Philip took the gospel to Russia and then to Turkey, where he was crucified upside down. Thomas was killed with a spear in the country of India. Matthew preached the gospel in Ethiopia and the Middle East before he was martyred. James, the son of Alphaeus, preached the gospel to the Jews, and it is believed he was the first bishop of the Syrian church in Jerusalem where he was stoned to death. Thaddeus, also called Jude, took the gospel to the Middle East. He was killed with an axe-headed spear in modern-day Beirut. Simon the Zealot preached the gospel in the Middle East and North Africa, and he is believed to have been sawn in two in Syria. Matthias preached the gospel in Armenia and Judea before he was stoned in Jerusalem, and Bartholomew took the gospel to Asia Minor and India. He was crucified upside down in Armenia. Why? Why? Why would these men who ran away when Jesus was arrested give their lives for such? Because they had been transformed by the gospel, the same gospel that transforms you and me. Let's pray together. Father, we pray you'd help us to know Christ and his sufferings and death and our trust be in that and that you would be transforming us into the men, women, and children you want us to be. In Christ's name, amen. We come now to the Lord's table. Let's prepare by singing the words of before.